Welcome, True Believer readers, to Let's Read Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, a division of Let's Read Spider-Man, a proud member of the PacePod Patreon Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, you may also enjoy a podcast for people looking to learn a new skill. Ooh, sounds interesting, James B. Join Lonesome Pinky as he teaches guitar and vocals for two hours at six in the morning every Thursday on the PacePot Patreon Podcast Network. <laughs> the worst alarm clock and sensation at six in the morning ever is what that sounds like. From July of 1981, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man 56, The Peril and the Pumpkin by Roger Stern, Jim Shooter, and Jim Mooney. Spidey is snapping some questionably ethical pictures of the injured jack-o'-lantern checking into the Bellevue Hospital. Earlier, jack-o'-lantern tried to take the embassy delegates hostage. Thankfully, Machine Man stopped him and injured jack-o'-lantern in the process. At ESU, Peter is talking with Deb uh, Whitman about Steve Hopkins' malicious plan to rip Marcy's scarf off her head. When he enacts his plan, it turns out Marcy was hiding a queen bee that had been controlling her mind from her encounter with Swarm. Thankfully, Philip Chang, using his old karate skills from when he rolled with the white tiger, gives the insect a Eddie, roundhouse kick and Eddie, it buzz, buzz, buzzes off. Eddie, that's not what happened. <laughs> April Fool's, James B. Oh, I see we're doing an April Fool's episode. So much fun. Wonderful, Eddie. That's wonderful. That was a good April Fool's joke. Though. Oh, well, thank you. You did a nice job creating that storyline. <laughs> Listeners, if you've been following us, you know she has been wearing a variety of headgear. So when Steve pulls off her wig, she doesn't have a bee controlling her mind. We just find out that... She can't dye her hair anymore, and she's embarrassed that she's a brunette. We need a brunette anyway, Marcy. This is probably a good thing to separate you from the other blondes. Yeah, it is. Back to the story. When Jack-o'-lantern wakes, he takes the hospital hostage. One of the hostages is Nathan Lubinsky, Aunt May's fiancé. So Spidey sneaks into the hospital. He clumsily gets caught sneaking, but frees the hostages just before they're killed and defeats Jack-o'-lantern. Eddie... Let me describe for the listeners Jack-O-Lantern. He is Ghost Rider with a flaming pumpkin head instead of a skull. James B., let me describe Jack-O-Lantern's form of movement. It's the Pogo platform. Substantially less cool than Ghost Rider's motorcycle. This is like a thing you would find in a children's toy store. It just has like a, a bouncy bottom and a flat top the most hilarious form of transportation possible we see though that the book ends as peter returns to aunt may only to have her yell at him for being absent when she needed him she tells him to just go yeah it's fair she did need him he explains to the reader that if he tells her he's spider-man she will worry all the time which is worse than him getting yelled at this one time and i think that was really smart writing. I, I said, okay, yeah, it's a good point. Otherwise, you know, just tell her. Stop taking all this abuse. I agree. Uh, a lot of things happen in this book, too. Spidey is warned by his least favorite cop, Officer Keating, who I'm, I'm glad to see. This is another side character we've seen several times. I did not remember Officer Keating, to be uh, honest. Oh, Officer Keating, we saw him when uh, Spider-Man 
I think this was Purple Man. Sure. I believe you. I just was surprised that you noted a character that I really don't recall. So good, good for you, Eddie. You, you... He was also in the one where they Spider-Man stops the ambulance that's carrying the Smasher or whatever his name was. Nitro. <laughs> they have a whole run in there. Keating's driving in a unmarked car. It's all his fault. Anyways, going into the hospital in this hostage situation, Keaton tells him not to, but Spidey, he's just like, ha ha ha, I don't like you, so I'll go into the hospital. But Jack-O-Lantern's threatening to kill everyone. It seems super dangerous to me, even if it is Spider-Man. Speaking of Jack-O-Lantern, he tells the reader in Thought Bubbles that Spider-Man is too powerful. And Jack O'Lantern wants nothing to do with fighting him. I can't recall any costume villain thinking they can't go tip tap toe to Spider-Man and fight him. They just he's like, I'm out of here. I'm like, I've never seen that. It's the most interesting thing about Jack O'Lantern. <laughs> Believe me, they really try to make him interesting with this ridiculous costume that apparently no one can take off to, and his head's just gonna be flaming while he's passed out in the hospital bed. I'm more worried about the ridiculousness inside ESU with Steve Hopkins. What a turd for pulling off Marcy's headscarf. I know it wasn't a queen bee from Swarm, but I thought it was going to be something more interesting than poor Marcy just not having blonde hair anymore. Oh, well. Steve Hopkins needs something to do. He is the least important character in the (laughs) Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man storyline. Speaking of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, from August of 1981, it's Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, number 57, These Wings Enslaved, by Roger Cern, Jim Shooter, and once again, Jim Mooney. With a rented tux in hand, Spidey is swinging over to J. Jonas to attend a swanky party for his beau, Marla Madison. She is taking a job to continue her research at the Brand Corporation. Spidey takes a minute to call Aunt May to see how she's doing, and she tells him she forgives him. She thinks he's got a cold because he's talking through his mask. Great detail work here, Roger Sturt. Eddie, once again, could you show the listeners what it sounds like talking through a mask? James B., I may have another surprise later in this hold, episode. Hold on. Eddie, could you please get on the... I don't know who this is, I, but I need Eddie. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I kicked that potential alter ego supervillain that looked a lot like me out of here. So l- let me just continue with this party at J. Jonas. As Spidey's swinging to the party, uh, he's chased by a sparkly cloud, but shoes it away. Afterwards, he feels bad because he thinks that it might have been... The mopey will-o'-the-wisp. At the party, Peter snaps some pictures. While out on the balcony, the sparkles from earlier attach to a bodyguard. Slowly, the bodyguard loses control of himself, and when his tuxedo shreds, we see Killer Shrike. Shrike involuntarily kidnaps Marla. A character that I never would have remembered. It wasn't even that long ago, but this guy's name was stupid. I don't even remember what he did. I I used was awful. I can't remember if he's even a good guy or a bad guy. I really have no idea. But let me explain this. You said he, did you say he involuntary? Involuntarily kidnaps Marla, yes. Willow the Wisp potential character is possessing Killer Shrike somehow through Killer Shrike's special energy like armbands or something. Yeah. Which allows him to take control of Killer Shrike and Willow the Wisp needs Marla to help him so he has shrike grab marla and fly off 
to brand headquarters, which he's supposed to work because they have the machines and she has the brains and Willow the Wisp is going to try to put himself back together again. By Willow the Wisp is one of those anti-hero, like, oh, I was doing bad, but I didn't yes. really know it because I'm really a good guy. So we're right. supposed to be pulling forced to do bad last time we saw him. It's true. And-, and I'm just mentioning that because in theory, this book is about a good guy controlling another good guy, <laughs> kidnapping a good guy to free a good guy. Correct? <laughs> That'd be right. There's not a lot of villains going on here. Right. And if there's going to be any fighting going on, it's because Spider-Man's going to have to defend all these good guys against probably good guys, honestly. So you can explain the rest of the story. I, I won't interrupt till the end. I'll just note that it's hilarious that Shrike uh, can kind of talk consciously, although can't control his body through this whole scenario. Well, Shrike brings Marla to a mysterious room at Brand Headquarters. This is where she's going to work where she sees machinery she didn't know existed, along with Dr. Spencer Smythe. In synchronicity, Smythe and Marla realize Will-o'-the-Wisp is trapped in Shrike's suit. Spidey shows up, and Shrike's suit attacks, but Spidey knocks out Shrike. His, His suit continues to fight him, actually. Spidey webs up some brand goons and CEO Melvin, who are the only villains in this, while Marla and Smythe reform will-o'-the-wisp and old wispy destroys the facility marla and smythe groggily come to and after working together so intensely smythe realizes marla is his long-lost daughter j jonah vows an investigation into brand corporation for endangering marla and there we have it folks turns out marla madison was the daughter of spencer smythe i told you kevin ewing no You are once again mistaken, Eddie. There's no Spencer Smythe in this story. Uh, Eddie, (laughs) Kevin Ewing is never wrong. (laughs) Yes, we will not be questioning him. April Fool's again. James B. Something that was true was I never thought anything about Will-O-Wisp or Shrike would intrigue me, but Wisp's control of Shrike's suit was... Really fun. <laughs> Particularly Shrike fighting unconscious. More points for Roger Stern. Wait, just so I understand, are we going to have April Fool's lies throughout this? No, no, I'm clearly done. After this. <laughs> okay, because we have like three more books and I need to, pre- I have to read more closely if you're going to keep putting in these lies. <laughs> well, hopefully there's not one in this next book, which is from September of 1981. Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man at 58. Ring Out the Old in the New by Stern, John Byrne, and Vince Coletta. While Peter's making a new friend on ESU's campus, Greg Salinger, the ringer is breaking into the tinkerer's old lab to find his costume. Unfortunately for him, an even stronger character breaks the wall down, knocks out the ringer, and kidnaps the ringer and takes some of his own gear. Eddie, the ringer wears a green costume with orange circular, like, ring straps, probably metal. It could be leather. It's hard to really be sure. But all around him, he has, like, two also around his head that make a visor. So just picture a guy with a lot of green with a lot of orange G.I. Joe inspired, we could say, right? He does have that G.I. Joe kind of yeah, look. Well, I agree. <laughs> Spidey's going to make fun of him later. So uh, back at ESU, Peter bonds over a walk through the quad with his new friend, Salinger. When Peter arrives at his office, the jokester grad students and their jokester professor, Dr. Sloan, 
punished Steve Hopkins for his involvement in Marcy's wig incident last issue with a pie in the face. Peter asks Deb Whitman out to dinner. Peter decides to go out with Deb Whitman and he says, I'm going to go meet her. And he decides to travel to dinner in his Spider-Man outfit. Now, I know we make a lot of jokes here, but I'm thinking this was a bad decision because if he had traveled to dinner in his Peter Parker clothing, he would have just gone to dinner. But because he's swinging around like Spider-Man, villains see him and people get in his business. I doubt supervillains are going to get involved if they see Peter Parker walking to dinner the way they do when they see Spider-Man. I'm just saying. How mundane, James, be to walk to dinner. Well, sure enough, the ringer sees Spidey, uh, and he's being forced to fight Spider-Man by the shadowy figure from earlier because he is wearing what he thinks is a remote explosive belt. The ringer continues to occupy Peter, and we see Deb Whitman stood up once again despondent. Deb tearily walks home, only to have none other than Professor Jonas Harrow emerge from the shadows. He convinces Deb to... No, no, Eddie. Once again, that is not what happens. April Fool's listeners! Deborah Whitman isn't working with Jonas Harrow. Um, to come perfectly clean, I mixed up which which podcast we were going to use for April Fool's and wrote some jokes. And this is one that I've kept from last episode and this episode. So what you're saying is you weren't so brilliant enough yes. to start the joke two episodes ago. You just made a mistake. Ah, uh, yes. It's very funny that you've been <laughs> determined to tie... Uh, Marla to Smythe and to insist that Deb Whitman is going to be a villain. So she's gonna, we'll... she's gonna be a villain, man. It's gonna yes, happen. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it's funny. I'm, I find myself redoing a lot of the summaries today. Look, what really happens is Peter tells the Ringer, "Look, I didn't catch you committing a crime, so I have no issues with you. So leave me alone." And he literally leaves the fight to go have dinner with Deborah. The Ringer did kind of get beat up a little bit. After dinner, he says to Deborah, meet me home in 30 minutes. And I'm like, no, it's a terrible move. He changes back to Spider-Man. He goes back and then he beats up the ringer again. And then he goes back home and has popcorn with Deborah. And I was like, wait, what? It's crazy. Oh, and in the end, they uh, showed the person who's behind everything. And the villain who's behind everything is... The Beatle. Yes, but... The Beatles' plot to control the ringer, it, it had a really important and logical reason for it. He put the belt around the ringer, and the belt was actually recording all the ringer's movements in relation to Spider-Man's attacks. And this belt then, the Beatles going to use the data that's been gathered so that when he fights Spider-Man, his suit will be able to anticipate Spider-Man's moves. I, I like this once again. Nice job, Roger Stern. Yeah, in the world of comic books, that was a cool concept. I mean, we're not going to poke holes in everything because... But I really was... I just couldn't believe Deborah Whitman didn't get stood up. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, it was so like, easy I'm... to write a fake story there that seemed plausible. Uh, so many times it could have happened. Even even the book had a couple chances for that. Twice he's like, I'll meet you. And both times he was Spider-Man just beforehand. Unbelievable. Well, maybe she'll get stood up in our next book. And that book is from October of 1981. Stanley presents Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man 59, I Want Spider-Man, by Stern, Mooney, and Jay Straziski, or something like that. Felix, a producer making a new show detailing the 
escapades of Spider-Man wants more recent footage of our hero. Uh, last issue, everybody, just so you know, there was a TV that was like talking about the show at ESU as Peter was walking around. Uh, I, I'm not big on advertising in Spider-Man, but I assume that this and these little interludes are clever advertising for the new cartoon show. Once again, good writing, Roger Stern. Uh, well, Felix wants to send Maury and Martin Blank into the field to gather footage of Spidey. And while Maury is apprehensive, Martin Blank demands they take the job. Eddie, in this Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man book, the B story is the Beatle from last issue letting us know his costume is now way better. He is way smarter. With the information from the ringer, he's just going to beat up Spider-Man pretty soon. And even though we're not going to talk about it today, I hopefully he does it in the next issue because he ain't really going to do it in this issue. So he's, True. he's really getting ready, though. Well, meanwhile, Felix and Martin fly in a helicopter around New York until they see Spidey. When they do, Martin sees an opportunity for revenge and attacks as the gibbon. The pair, Spider-Man and Martin, crash into a nearby building interrupting Mindworm, who's been working with a psychiatric group that helps children overcome trauma from their past. Reformed from fighting, Mindworm channels waves of psychic energy, forcing the dueling pair away from the kids and back onto the streets. Eddie. <laughs> April Fools, listeners! <laughs> What actually happens is the Gibbon attacks, and Spider-Man says, why are you attacking? And he's like, oh, I'm a Gibbon, and you're going to show I can fight you. And he's like, why? Stop fighting me. Just yeah. stop being a jerk. And he's like, I'm not, I don't want to fight you. And then I think Spider-Man, like, one punches him at the end and just takes him down. But what really is important is that after he knocks out the Gibbon, the Beetle finally shows up and pushes his giant wall, and Spider-Man's like, even though I have the proportional strength and speed of a spider, <laughs> apparently I can't move out of the way while holding the gibbon. I only have the ability to throw the gibbon clear and let the wall fall on him. But don't worry, the next panel, Spider-Man's kind of standing there like the wall only sort of hurts him. You've only told us about his proportional uh, strength as a, of a spider 15 times less than we read in the last, mm -hmm. like, six issues. They're always reminding us. And it always has strength and speed. And I'm always yes. like, are spiders that fast? Yes, I think this, <laughs> yeah, it's also strength. Are spiders super strong? I don't know. I guess so. James B., I think it's, I'm starting to agree with Travis Bowe about the Gibbon. Um, he attacks Spidey for more interesting reasons than most villains attack Spider-Man. Like you said, he's, like, confused, and Spider-Man's like, stop it. You don't need to attack me. There's no reason for us. But he has this kind of illness that makes him perceive that Spider-Man is the source of why he has all these troubles in his life, and nobody likes him, and he's ugly, and all these other terrible things. So uh, it's a lot better than like, oh, I want to rob a bank, even though I'm super smart and can make all these things and will never need money if I just invest properly with all my gadgets. I <laughs> I, I like this. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, the Gibbon doesn't have any, really money. He's working a, did, like a job, you know. Did you notice my April Fool's joke had mine worm and Gibbon in it? This is Yeah. This is my <laughs> this is my Travis Bow call out. Yes, I realize. <laughs> This is the same way that the Molten Man got associated with Liz Allen because the only person you could think of with Travis Bowe is the two times he's appeared on our show. You're like, oh, once with the Gibbon and once with the Mind Worm. So I understand what you did there. So honored to be compared to the Molten Man. <laughs> 
Anyways, James B. There's some Greg Salinger storyline brewing as well. Like we meet this guy for no reason at all. Then he, the second time we meet him, he mentions that he's like really old for a grad student or something. And then the third time, Spider-Man's like hanging around or something and he flies over. He thinks the mafia's bothering Greg, but it's like the feds. Greg Salinger isn't going to just go away quietly. Yeah. Something's up with this kid. I don't know if he he's was, in... He was said he was in the army and that's why he's older for most college students. Yeah, so. yeah. Things have happened to him. That's right. That's right. Something's up. We're not going to find out about it next because the last book we covered is not Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man 60. Instead, it's from 1981. Stanley presents King Size Annual Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man 3, Dark Side of the Moon by David Kraft, Jim Sherman, and Al Weiss. Hold on, Eddie. Before you read this line, you wrote Wolfman is back. It's not Wolfman. Oh, that's right. What's this guy's name again? It is Manwolf. Manwolf. My bad. How could I ever make that mistake, right? Mm. Well, Manwolf is back. Thankfully, he seems to have more control of himself than he did last time we saw him. Christine Saunders, John Jameson's girlfriend, or I guess maybe he's fiancé. I can't remember. I think so, too. Probably fiancé. Well, uh, is there Jay Jonah, Kurt Connors, and Spider-Man. They spend most of their time in this book in Kurt Connors' lab trying to cure the furry jameson after many twists and turns the moonstone falls out of john jameson's neck and cured of his evil canine alter ego spider-man was pretty convinced that he killed john and writer david Kraft did a good job having the appropriate reaction from spider-man over two panels it was perfectly written so well done there uh to david Kraft. I, I agree. Nicely done. I, I really enjoyed page nine. It has one of the best depictions of J. Jonah that I've seen thus far. Uh, annuals are growing on me, James B. When they bring in a, a guest artist like this, we get kind of a new tilt as to how these characters should be depicted in the books. I think Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man is just coming into its own, whether it's the annuals or the other books. That's just a good product right now. J. Jonah gets involved a lot in the antics here. By the way, listeners, we completed the entire summary. It was only two sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're they're just in a room almost the whole time. And there's a lot of character development and seeing how J. Jonah doesn't trust anyone and how his anti-trusting leads to Man-Wolf getting out because he wants to save him. It's good. Yeah, well, since you said everything I actually was supposed to read, oh, you just sorry. on top of me. Uh, yeah, there you go. Just what Eddie said. <laughs> pretend that I said it. Sorry, James B. Eddie, how can people reach us? You can email us at letsreadspiderman at gmail.com. Or you could find us on Twitter at letsreadspidey. Feel free to give us an April Fool's joke. Yeah, you didn't do one on the annual, by the way. It's true. I felt I used up all my bandwidth on the other the other books we were covering today. So, well, I'm James B. Joined by Eddie. And remember, listeners, that Let's Read Peter Parker: The Spectacular Spider-Man is a division of Let's Read Spider-Man, a proud member of the Pacepot Patreon Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, you may also enjoy a podcast about keeping everyone safe. Ah, that sounds good. Join Captain Jean DeWolf as she explains how to be safe in your room with home security and how not to give out personal information over the phone. Uh, uh, that's, that's probably not a bad idea, I guess, James B. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Uh, April Fool's, Eddie. That's not the podcast. <laughs>
Okay, all right. What was I thinking? <laughs> the Real Podcast is about how to run away from your problems, such as how Jack-O-Lantern ran away from Spider-Man. Learn how to avoid every responsibility that seems hard from the mysterious Jack-O-Lantern. Turn into You Don't Know Jack Thursdays at 9 a.m. on the PacePot Patreon Podcast Network. Let's run away from our problems, James B. <laughs> right into the exit music. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Eddie, I have a story for you. I can't wait. Eddie, you know I've been reading Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe? Yes. And I'm trying not to read too much because I don't want to get ahead of what where we are. So I don't like to read the things that happened in like 1985 because I'm only reading, you know, comics in 1981. But they just brought Jim Shooter in, who's going to be the editor-in-chief. And what they do in the story is it mentions like, okay, I think it's like 1977 in my book. Yes. And he's coming on board. And then they like flash back sometimes and say like, when this person used to work at this place and this other job, you know, so they're going back to his childhood. This guy, when he's a kid, he reads a bunch of comics and then he decides, okay, the DC comics are kind of junk and the Marvel comics are really good. And he says, DC doesn't know how to write good comics. So he writes a Superboy comic, mails it into DC and says, here, I know what good comics are because I've been reading them. Go ahead and print this. Wow. And they print it. He gets wow. credit for writing a story at age 13, Eddie. Wow. What a guy. <laughs> He's like a comic book prodigy editor. Yeah, later on, he runs into people that say, hey, you were, you were the guy I looked up to because I was like 11 and you were 13 writing comics. <laughs> How inspirational is true. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned that because if you didn't realize, Jim Shooter was involved in the first two comics in your summaries today that we did. Yeah. So. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's going to become the editor-in-chief eventually. I mean, he's it's not quite happening yet, but nobody wants that job. The editor-in-chief job is like a it's like a burnout job, apparently, in Marvel. I the, bet. There's so much going on. I mean, <laughs> there's three different books that Spider-Man is in alone, so... A lot of this book is about the bullpen and what's going on in the background and the scenes. And people keep quitting and going from one company to another company. And different people, like I said, are getting paid different amounts and they're overworked and under this. And right. And Chris Claremont's on board now and he's now taking over the X-Men. And John Byrne's not quite with him yet. He's going to head over there. Right. Iron Fist is a really popular book, which is kind of funny. I'm like, Iron Fist is a popular book. How's that going? Not, not my style either. Yeah. So, but... Anyway, I, I figured if you wanted to know, there might be some 13 or listeners of our show. Can you think of any? <laughs> I think I know one. <laughs> well, get writing, Ian. Let's go. Yeah, we expect a full uh, new Spider-Man from the Golden Age, since you've been following along so closely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>